gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're going to be talking about B2B marketing lessons from Schitt's Creek and how to build relatable characters in your marketing. It's called Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek. And this week, we have special guest, Gwen. How are you? I'm great. How are you? That is Gwen Lafage, VP of Brand and Content at Cinch, a cloud communications platform used by eight of the 10 largest tech companies in the world. So Schitt's Creek is a Canadian TV sitcom. It was created, written, and executive produced by Dan Levy and his father, Eugene Levy. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire for this show and many other shows at Caspian Studios. It aired from 2015 to 2020, so for six seasons. And it stars uh, Eugene Levy and his son, Dan Levy, as well as Catherine O'Hara and Annie Murphy and Chris Elliott, who plays Roland Shit. Oh, you're, you're the uh, mayor we're supposed to meet. That's right, I'm the mayor. So if you're looking for an to kiss, it's mine. So the whole idea is this once rich family, the Roses, find themselves totally broke after falling victims to fraud. And they end up moving to their only remaining asset, which is this podunk little town called Schitt's Creek, which Johnny Rose bought for his son, David Rose, uh, as a joke because of the name. Wait, you actually purchased that town? There's like culture shock when they get there, right? Because they're used to having all the amenities, all of this wealth, and then they're surrounded by regular people. I actually think this place is kind of cute. Did you say cute? No, Alexis, Martha Stewart's Hampton home is cute. And so the show has won numerous awards, at least 30. A handful of primetime Emmys uh, has gotten a lot of accolades, and it's rated 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. And so why did they create this show in the first place? Dan Levy was the one who came up with the idea in the first place, and he started thinking about it when he was watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And... He was really fascinated by this, like the lives of the ultra rich. And so he started to wonder what would happen if these wealthy families lost it all? Like, would the Kardashians still be the Kardashians without the money? Children, keep an eye on these bags. Apparently in hell, there's no bellman. And um, so he was fascinated by that question. And while researching families who actually lost it all, he came across this story about how Kim Basinger actually bought a small town in Georgia and she bought it uh, in 1989 for $20 million cash, and she was intending to, to make it into this tourist attraction. I laugh at it because it just seems so ridiculous. She wanted to make it into this sort of tourist attraction, 
with uh, major recording and production studios, but her plans ended up stalling. And so she ended up reselling the property in 1995 for just over $4 million. So she lost a lot and she ended up going bankrupt because of it. Kids, we just came in to say goodnight and uh, to remind you that we will get through this as a family. Warmest regards to you both. And that we will end up on our feet in no time. Of course, by then our feet will be shoeless and filthy and mangled from walking on cigarette butts and broken beer bottles. So he was fascinated by these stories. And then he pitched the idea to his dad, Eugene Levy, who's a, um, an icon, really this comedic icon. And they ended up partnering on the creation of the show. So these characters are pretty hateable at the beginning, right? Like you, you don't, <laughs> there's, there's, uh, they're pretty bad people. <laughs> uh, they, there's not a lot, um, there's not a lot that they do for each other. They're super selfish. I need that bed. Why? Because I need it. Why? Because if someone were to break in here in the middle of the night wanting to murder us, they would attack this bed first. So I need this bed. So you're saying that you want me to get murdered first? Uh, sort of. That was the plan. Yeah. They're self-absorbed. They don't really support the community. They don't support any of that. And then by the end of the story, spoiler alert, they completely change. Um, yes, love that journey for me. But so what is it about them when they're bad that makes them likable? Because they are likable somehow, even though they're not. Yeah, I think in a way it's because they exaggerate and accentuate some of the traits that we can find in ourselves, right? Like some of the things they say or the thing they do, we're like, ooh, I've done this before. Obviously, we don't do everything that every one of them do at once, right? Like, but sometimes we will have maybe those little moments. So in a way, they're very human. I just want a bathtub and a long extension cord, please. And I think you see all their flaws and how they interact with each other and especially like the the brother-sister relationship. David, what are we... Shut up. You shut up. You shut up. Um, you shut up? You shut up. The mom-son relationship. I think we we can relate a lot to some of the moments and it makes it funny, right? It's so much or so exaggerated that it makes her laugh and maybe in a way it makes her think about her own behaviors and reactions sometimes. They also exaggerate a lot their facial expression, which is something that is really cool and get turned into a lot of memes, right? Like, and GIF. And, and I think that's a fun part of it as well, right? It's like how the acting, I think, of the character is, is very well done, um, makes them really relatable. Yeah, I think one of the things for me that, that stood out, and I love the physical comedy that they do is like so grand. Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are like, all-time greats at that and have, you know, years and years and years of of doing all sorts of, like, sketch comedy and, and physical comedy and all that stuff. The world is falling apart around us, John, and I'm dying inside. So they're, they're amazing. But I think that the way that they, like, treat other people who are pretty much, like, nice people and you get that fish-out-of-water feeling over and over, they're basically these sort of sort of damaged people running into the super nice people. The name is Rose. I don't see a reservation under that name. But I think for me what it turned when like the show turned for me is when David Rose becomes friends with Stevie and they have this like frenemy aspect and you're just like we have all been there 
where you're a stranger in a new place and you need to make a friend and there's one other person who's like, turns out is kind of like you and maybe you don't like him at first and then that, you know, you, you grow to sort of be friends together. Okay, can I ask you a question? Shoot. I think you're kind of rude. Is that a question? And that's, they all sort of find that, right? They all f- find this friend in this new place. And I feel like it's just such a part of the human condition to like be an outsider. And they've never been outsiders in their entire life. And so when you are an outsider and you just get that like first friend, it matters so much to them. And you can see that those friendships matter more to them than all the money that they used to have. Yeah, that's really true. And I think like I, I've been moved around quite a lot. I've been in this situation where I have to make new friends. So I have to like understand a new culture um, and been through quite a lot of culture shock. It happened that I just recently moved to Atlanta. So I guess to Georgia <laughs> from Europe. And that's a pretty big uh, culture shock as well. And you can be friends with people around, even though you don't share some of the same experiences and values. And I think that's also maybe one of the learning of the show, right? Like it's, is how friendship can develop even with people that are not just like you. My car's worth less than your pants. And I think that's, that's quite interesting that they highlight that in the show. And it's intentional, right? So Meredith, can you go into like how they were very intentional in the way that they wrote the show and wrote the comedy? Yeah. So one thing about how Dan and Eugene approached this was they knew they had an amount of runway to go through this story that they had in mind for the show. And so they approached the first couple seasons as like, we might get canceled, but we have this story that we want to tell. It was a commentary on income inequality. And so Dan had an idea of how he wanted to, what he wanted to accomplish in those last couple seasons and how he wanted to wrap that up. And so there's a a real slow burn in how the characters develop. And a lot of it is based off one real life experience. So one thing that Dan approaches in the series is this community that is void of any homophobia so that his character could have a love story that felt really real and genuine. And now here he is, the love of my life. Standing in front of me. This just felt like the perfect place to ask you to marry me. And so he kind of wanted to approach that. And also there's some real values underneath the whole comedy of it. And so he had this town that would normally, I think, in pop culture be made fun of. It's not a wealthy place. Um, The town sign is really... Um, ludicrous. But like, for the most part, they have this real empathetic approach to this town that could otherwise just be totally wrecked with comedy, right? But there are certain things that are off limits for the comedy, which is like, we're not going to make fun of the LGBTQA community. You're my Mariah Carey. That compliment could bring me to tears, but I'm not going to let it we're not going to make fun of this town that really is an open and smart and empathetic place. David, look at this place. You won. And on a personal note, I don't want you to leave me here, okay? (laughs) 
<laughs> Did you put on deodorant today? <laughs> and so they wanted it to be a really relatable story that has a genuine um, sort of emotional journey to it. And then in the very end, like Dan wanted to wrap it up kind of tenderly. He said what I wanted for our series finale was just a great episode of TV. I think that's all people wanted. They don't need huge fireworks display. They just want to know that the characters are going to be okay. I think it's really interesting that they built these such relatable characters by using the guardrails for the comedy, right? By making those decisions to say, like, there's not going to be homophobia in this town. I've never been in this situation before where someone's been so nice to me and generous. There's not going to be, like, you know, classic sort of, you know, dumb people in the town or closed-minded people or things like that. Like, this world does not feel lived in, right? Like, this is, like, utopian in some ways, right? Like, you don't watch this show and feel gritty and real and realistic. It feels like it is a story that someone is telling you, you know, like an allegory. And you just learn to love these characters and you want to spend more time with them and you want to learn more about them and why they did the things that they do. Like if they launched a spinoff of this where, you know, they start a, a detective agency, like we would all still watch, right? Like we could watch them do anything because they're such fascinating people and they went through this sort of transformation. Moira, I have to ask you, are those wigs real hair? I just want to reach out. Please and don't. No, Maureen does not like to be manhandled. And I think that by having those guide rails on there and by taking like a lot of that negativity out and focusing almost all the negativity in the interpersonal sort of like baggage that they carried with them going into this, which like a lot of that is predicated by, you know, having an excess of money and, and a lack of closeness with each other. It allows you to like highlight the characters even more by like making this sort of like euphoric town without a lot of problems. It's like a Petri dish. You're more able to see the change in these four characters because of all these things around them. And I think it's just a brilliant way to like put them into all these scenarios where they're not facing insurmountable challenges. David, I politely asked that concierge girl if she had stolen my earrings and she turned ice cold and now she's on her way to a pawn shop. What? I need a towel. So, you know, I guess they're on the bank of ruin all the time. So that that is very, <laughs> very difficult and, and relatable in that way. But most of us are absolutely never going to deal with being billionaires and lo losing every single thing and losing all of our, you know, famous acquaintances and losing our helicopter and losing all this stuff. We're not going to do that. But <laughs> we are going to have situations where like, there's the, you know, person that, that we work with that we don't like that much or that our, you know, parents are annoying when we have a date you know, come by or all those different things. Did you notice that uh, they lose everything except their fabulous clothes? <laughs> what are you wearing? What is that, a nightgown? Like, yeah. they're always, yeah. they're always, <laughs> always super well-dressed. Yeah. I was like, okay, that that's cool. Like, <laughs> they can still afford that. Maybe they carry that with them, right, from the previous life. <laughs> they, they do it in style, right? They lose everything, but in style. Boris <laughs> hats kills me. Yeah. And the yeah. wigs. Dan's pants. Yeah. yeah I'm like, <laughs> so how the heck do we do this? That's the question, right? How do we make characters that are relatable in marketing? And what are the things that we can do in our marketing to emulate the brilliant character development and relatability of the characters in Schitt's Creek? 
sometimes, especially in B2B, we take ourselves and our content too seriously. There's still this belief, I mean, it's moving, there's progress, but there's still this belief that in order to appeal to professional audiences or people in the workplace and buyers at tech companies, you need to be serious to be professional, right? And I think that idea is is changing. I think that's the thing with the show is that, like you said, it's fake. And we know it's fake, it's a story. And they don't take themselves too seriously somehow. I think that's something that we can learn from. David, I have an urgent campaign-related question. I am approachable. Is that a question? And injecting humor in our marketing, there's a right time and place to do it. But it makes your your brand as a marketer, your company, also being more relatable, right? People want to be educated, yes, but they also want to be entertained. And I think that's something that we see more now on social, especially, or how brands, even B2B, use humor to entertain people and build this relationship, right? Show the real themselves or the people working at those companies, they show their real them and become a representative of the brand and do it in a in a fun way. Yeah, I was talking to a marketer a few days ago and they were saying how the number one thing that they hear from their customers is that the product saved them time, like hours of time. And like that means like next to nothing, right? It's like the most important commodity that we have in our lives, like saving time. Like, you know, I saved you time. Like, oh my gosh, that's irreplaceable. You did something that is so amazing, but yet it sounds so boring and whatever. So he dug into a bunch of like, okay, well, what did you do with that extra time? If lunch is canceled, I suppose I'll show up on time for Jazzigal's rehearsal. And he was saying that like the vast majority of people that were using this product were people in financial services. And it meant that at the end of the year, at the end of the quarter, they didn't have to pull all-nighters. They didn't have to spend work weekends at the end of quarter, which they always had to do. And that those weekends, they got to spend with their family for the first time in years. And I'm like, that is a great, humanized, interesting story, right? It's like, this software ended up letting me watch my kid's soccer game. And it's not even hyperbole. That's, that's actually what happened. And if you think of the type of person and how your mental makeup is when you are sitting at your home office or at work while your kid is playing their soccer game and how upset and frustrated and angry you would be, it's like you could tell a really brilliant story with, that, with those sort of parameters. But so often we just say, well, this saves you time. And it's a bullet with like a little cartoon emoji. And like those right. are the sort of things where like you have to figure out like, well, what is the actual thing that that does from a human-centric place? And like you got to obviously talk to your customers to get those stories to figure out what they're doing with the results of that. But that's a much more interesting story to me. And it's something that I would pay attention to more. Focusing on thing on the, on the ultimate benefit, because we, even when you buy for a company, Ultimately, you buy something because it's going to help yourself, right? It's going to help you get a better job done or shine a right light on your team or get things done faster or save costs or something. Um, but I think there is always like an ultimate personal motive to buying a software, even if it's on behalf of a company. And we say that a lot, right? People buy from people. People like buy with emotion. What's that? Eye cream. From where? From Paris? How did you pay for it? 
Uh, one of my credit cards is still working. Well, I know this is a bizarre concept for you, David, but if you want cream from Paris, you need a job so you can pay for the cream from Paris. Okay, we'll tell that to the bags under my eyes then. And right after you tell your next joke, I want you to go down to the front desk and ask what's her name? Stevie. Where you can get a job around here. All right, I'm in the middle of getting rid of an X-rated sign before it scares off the few buyers we might actually have. Okay, I'll get on that. You want the smooth under eyes of a 16-year-old? Get a job. And I think that's the thing, it's the emotional uh, side of it, right? Like, uh, when you were talking about this company, I was remembering, I don't know if you guys remember that, there was like a series of of ads made by Slack in the early days of Slack when they had like a girl riding a unicorn and it's creating content that brings some emotion, whether it's like makes you laugh or makes you think or feel that it's intimately connecting to it because it talks to you rather than just talk about what it can do for your company, um, which ultimately we don't care that much about, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that's also finding the actual personal benefits of the buyer, right? Like why would it be interesting in that, in that search for personally as a human being, what it brings to them? Yeah, I think another piece on making relatable characters is focusing on the interpersonal relationships, right? It's like, we know so much after spending six seasons with them about David's relationship with Moira. Like we know a ton about it. Uh, we know how that's, different than his relationship with his dad. We know how it's different from his relationship with his sister. Um, David? Like, those are the sort of things that add so much more interesting, complex behavior. Have either of you read the book Story by Robert McKee? Uh, anyways, great book. Well, I highly recommend you read Story. So anyways, uh, Robert McKee, famous storyteller, he wrote the book called Story, and it's great for, for many, many, many reasons. But one of the things I heard him listen, talking on a podcast about how that a lot of times screenwriters choose the wrong medium that they want to tell stories in. And he said that like if you're really into internal conflict, you should be a book writer and not like write novels. If you're really into small interpersonal conflict, like family dynamics, things like that, you should write plays. And if you're into... Uh, sort of like person versus world, you should write films because you can play those things out a lot better. And it's a really interesting thing from a marketing perspective to think about like this story is more like a play than anything. And like a lot of TV shows are kind of written like that, that way in terms of like the interpersonal dynamics. And a lot of marketing, when you look at the different ways that marketing is told, you have the conflict versus self, which is like, hey, I could just buy this software with a credit card, swipe my credit card, I buy it, makes my life better. That's like me versus self, so you could write that. Where When it's you versus sales, or you versus marketing, or you versus customer success, or you versus the CFO, or not even versus, with the CFO, that we need to go on this journey together, you need to use different types of storytelling to tell that better. And visual is so important. And they do that like just the way that Moira says, David, those are the little things that go so far when you're trying to tell a character story. Is like when they have a nickname for the person. Either way, great progress for Bebe. Those little things, those little intricacies that are so funny that we all know, 
uh, about like working with other people. And like, those are the stories that you need to like hone in on when you're trying to make characters more relatable. How is your relationship different with the people who work around you? And that's interesting because I will say we don't do this too much, like in, in B2B, right? Like I think there is a kind of playbook, especially in positioning where it's more of the you versus the world, right? Like you yep. have this kind of old way, new way, right? Like you have to kill something in order to make something come to life. So it's like, that's why we also always see something is dead, right? Like email is dead and and then podcast is dead. I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, everything is dead for, so, for something else to be reborn. The world is falling apart around us, John, and I'm dying inside. Instead of going into more of the intimate stories that will maybe be more emotionally close to the buyer rather than those kind of ground scene that, like you said, is more like an action movie, right? So that that's quite interesting. I think maybe there is something to explore there on like how we can make stories in B2B that are more intimate to the people we're selling to. And that comes down to really understanding who you're selling to, right? Who is your audience and what makes them tick? So I think that's something that could make for more well, stories that are maybe more unique as well, rather than this grand themes of something I have to die for the new product to come to life. I saw a great piece of ad copy the other day. I forget the company, but it was like, your board meeting will never go smoother. And it's like, man, that is such a great moment in time pain point of like, got the board staring at you. You're pitching all your stuff. And you don't want this to go badly. But what a what a brilliant encapsulation of of interpersonal dynamics, right? It's you talking to the board and there's tons of prep that needs to go into it. I don't even know what is gonna go smoother, but that sounds great. And those are the like that's the sort of stuff where it's like that speaks volumes to me. But then again, like I would love to see the character arc of of that sort of thing. What are the people of the board going through? that allows this sort of circumstance? What are their lives like such that we could make, you know, this presentation that much easier? What does the person need to go through from a preparation standpoint to get ready for a board meeting? All those different things. How do the best people in the world get ready for board meetings? What are all the funny things that we could poke at that to get at this, you know, how do we make it smoother thing? Like there's just so much there that is like right from a story perspective and a character perspective and figuring out and really digging in on those interpersonal details. That made me think about about like a campaign I've seen from like a um, B2B tech company in Sweden called Mentimeter. There's too much uh, one-way communications in lectures and uh, workshops and in regular business meetings. And what we're trying to do is a very, very simple but powerful interaction tool. And this is Mentimeter. I don't know if you mm -hmm. know them, they like... Um, a tool for presenting or like you can ask questions, like can make a more of an interactive presentation. And they did this series or these videos where it's a bit of that on like how someone goes to present maybe in a boardroom or in a big meeting and you feel like the, the entering hell, right? Like the entering that like boardroom that is really scary and you can feel the sweat and you can feel like it's a hard moment for anyone that has presented in front of a, an audience or a boardroom. You definitely like feel those moments. So I think like, yeah, that made me remind of that or how they really nail down on like a true pain point, right? Of presenting in front of an audience and the emotion that come with it. 
and showing that in their communication so that you can relate to to that as as a user or you know because you've been through that experience just using those experiences another thing that i i feel like i never see enough is like we treat personas as if they're just their work persona and never they're like the rest of their life persona and like cios are a great example of this because obviously a lot of people market to cios but like i've known a million cios that have these just completely different, interesting, dynamic lives outside of work. You know, this person likes to fly planes. This person is like huge into like Boy Scouts and being a Boy Scout leader. This person is coach. This person is uh, really into like science experiments, like literally. And I feel like that's another thing that we never tell a well-rounded story of our prospects of what they are like outside of work. And if you look at the characters of Shit's Creek, they are so ridiculous. Can no one find nude photos of me on the internet? Like they are all like ridiculous ridiculous people. And that's what we like as an audience. Like we like the ridiculous. You don't watch the story about the, you know, boring person who no- nothing happens in their life, right? And I just wonder why we never tell more th- more stories in B2B with like three-dimensional type characters. Like we just never do it. And I just, it, it just seems so silly to me. Probably because it's hard to find the the common traits. So if you tell a story, well, you know, similar pain points for like the entire audience or like if you pick CIO, but do you need to tell a story about soccer or about flying plane, right? Like if there's not going to be one thing that is common to all of them somehow, Um but maybe that maybe that's why because it's a lot yeah. harder, right? Like to to find the, those commonalities. But at the same time, with Shit's Creek, that's the thing. It's like you don't have to like what they're doing or relate to their persona in a way in order to really relate to them, right? So I think it's maybe it's just about finding the story that makes them interesting. It doesn't matter what the story is. How many years have I known you? And I still can't figure out what goes on inside your head. So maybe that's, yeah, something we can do more of. For sure, like trying to make our audience more human or appeal to them on a more human side uh, through storytelling is something that we could see a lot more of in B2B. I, I guess we see it a lot more of it in B2C. I think like there's definitely more of that trying to appeal to certain people in their hobbies and people in their day-to-day life outside of work, right? For product that could be totally unrelated to to what they do on on the other side, right? Let's get to some uh, some lessons and some takeaways. Obviously, talk to uh, a bunch about how to build relatable characters. One of the things that I would just say is, you know, talk to a few customers. If you're on a marketing team, talk to a few customers and find out some stuff about them that's not about work. Hey, can I talk to you for a sec? Oh, always, just not now. Try to find some like super quirky traits or things like that that you could put into your marketing in some way. Like here's, you know, Jane Doe, CIO of XYZ Corp. She also just is obsessed with alligators. But trying to find those like quirky little things that make people interesting and make them tick. And then on an interpersonal level, ask them questions about their peers and the people they work with, specifically within like your buying committee, hopefully. Um, but even beyond that, like the other people who are interested in that deal, like, 
What's your relationship like with your CFO? What's your relationship like with your, you know, product marketing person? What's your relationship like with the VP of sales? What do you think of them? What do they think of you? Like those sort of things to get at those interpersonal details and then leverage that in in your storytelling and in your advertising. I think like probably two things being more relatable. I think like we could use more of our real customers in our marketing. Um, I think some co- uh, company do it well. All companies said we are putting customers at the center, right? Like that's that's definitely a thing, a buzzword. Okay, okay, okay. Um, but only a few companies actually do that on like actually putting customers at the center. And I think, especially in customer stories, I feel like we all use this kind of super boring template on like background, problem, solution. And there's so much more storytelling we could do with that by using actual real stories of our customers, right? When we talk to them and interview them, having them on videos, talking about themselves. Hi, I'm Moira Rose. I think that's something we could do a lot more. And then to be more funny in marketing, I think, like I was saying before, not taking ourselves too seriously, but also not being afraid of self, what's the right word? Like, um, deprecation, making fun of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that um, that could be quite interesting angle. Like, I, I guess not co- all company want to do that or are afraid of that, but sometimes putting your flaws and problem up front is also a good, interesting way to actually make you likable <laughs> because people don't find out about those problems after talking to you for 10 times, right? You've put it right in front in your marketing. Uh, in a way, I feel like in the Sheets Creek's character, it starts by that, right? It starts by showing us how bad these people are. And we're like, what? David, what are we? Shut up. You shut up. You shut up. Um, you shut up? You shut up. But then as it progressed, we start liking them more and more. Um, and I feel like that's almost turning things around, right? Like maybe in our marketing, we can do something a bit like that too. Is that, okay, we're not going to solve, we're not going to make coffee for you, but, you know, we, we're we going to save you time, you know? So I think there, there might be a way of saying what you're not um, could be quite interesting. <laughs> Gwen, any final thoughts? Any company can find a place for using both education and entertainment. Next step is to fold in the cheese. What does that mean? What does fold in the cheese mean? He folds it in. So thinking about entertaining your audiences, becoming more personal, showing the personality of the brand. Humor is a good way to do it. And especially on social. I feel like B2B doesn't have to be boring, right? Like, I mean, this this cliche, but I think at the same time, you can see that brand that embrace their own personality and embrace humor drive people. People want to have fun, right? So even if they are a CFO, believe it or not, <laughs> those people have fun too. <laughs> so I think there's um, just a place for it. And a topic for it. Of course, we don't want all your content to be funny. If you're talking about uh, difficult topics, you don't want to insert it there, but there's a place and time um, and there's ways to do it. I think probably for every single company. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
Gwen, thanks so much for for joining the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can uh, follow her on uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, posts a lot of amazing stuff, uh, super funny and uh, and great content. So we'll link up uh, your stuff in the show notes here. Any any final thoughts? Thank you for having me on the show. This was uh, really fun. Good night, children. Good night. Good night. Good night. Let's all pray we don't wake up. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>